Hi, and welcome to the African American Hour. I'm Byron Buckner, bringing you readings from the following publications. The New York Times, the Warrensburg Star-Journal, the Amsterdam News, the State Newspaper of Columbia, South Carolina, the Black Agenda Report, and I'm going to start off today's program with a story from New York City's Amsterdam News newspaper. The title is, We Are Here. New York State Crusade for More Inclusion of Deaf-Blind People of Color, written by Ariama Long and published March 16, 2023. The nation has fallen in love with American Sign Language performer Justina Miles, who interpreted for singer Rihanna during this year's Super Bowl halftime show. But more than just praise for individuals like Miles, Local legislators are taking the opportunity to highlight programs that can create real change for disabled communities of color that are often left out of the conversation. According to data collected from the 2019 American Community Survey, ACS, approximately 2.47 million people have combined hearing and vision loss or considered deafblind under federal guidelines. In New York State, ACS data indicated that about 120,000 individuals reported combined vision and hearing loss, representing 0.61% of the state's population. The racial breakdown of the state's deaf-blind ACS data shows there are about 60% white, 13% black, 18% Hispanic, and 5% Asian. Organizers believe that there is definitely an undercount of disabled people especially deaf-blind people of color across the state, leading to severe underfunding of services compared to other states. On-the-ground information has found that there are large numbers of deaf-blind people in Rochester, the Bronx, Albany, and Long Island. In New York State, Harlem Senator Cordell Clear and Brooklyn's Assembly member Stefani Zinnerman are sponsoring bills for a statewide deaf-blind co-navigator program. A co-navigator is specially trained to assist deaf-blind people with jobs, travel, school, and day-to-day activities. They often use tactile sign language in addition to ASL and Braille to help their clients communicate. Thanks to the organizing and awareness-raising work of the Black deaf community and others, we have come to understand that members of the deaf-blind community who are also people of color experience double prejudice against them in the form of racial discrimination and communication barriers, said Zinnerman. The world has not been built for them. Zinnerman has established an AD56 disability coalition in her district. She champions the idea of accessibility for all of her constituents. That includes websites that are easily navigated with text-to-speech functions, interpreters during Zoom calls and meetings, a building that people can get in and out of easily and translating voting materials into Braille in the near future. I'm proud to use my position to help push for this measure that will help deafblind persons get the assistance they require, not as charity, but as their human rights, said Zinnerman. Mark Safman, 54, a dedicated community advocate and a deafblind black man living in New York City, has been leading the crusade for a fully funded statewide co-navigator program and more representation in deafblind health care. Safman had brain surgery when he was 16 and lost much of his hearing and sight throughout his life as a result. He is blind in his right eye and hard of hearing. 
For most of his life, he fell back on pen and paper before technological advances allowed him to use his smartphone and apps to communicate. Southman didn't understand why his senses were so bad and had no real insurance when he came to New York City in 1997. When I moved to New York, I saw mostly white doctors, he said about his struggles when he was in his 40s. They told me there was an issue with my vision that could not be corrected. But none of them advised me to go to the Commission of the Blind and be declared legally blind in order to receive benefits. It was the first time he had pondered whether white and non-white people were treated equally when it came to accessing the health care system. I know people who are deafblind who are white. They discuss the problems they face but they get their accommodations, said Safman. I get fired. Many of the co-navigator programs the state has developed to date are geared toward youth with very few easy-to-navigate resources for middle-aged working deafblind adults until they hit retirement age. The current programs also have a regional and racial disparity, said Safman, with long waiting lists and low pay for co-navigators. Safman reached out to Clear for help and began his advocacy journey. Clear said she was proud to introduce Senate Bill 2503. She said that deafblind co-navigator programs have been successful in other states, and it is time that this world of services becomes open to New Yorkers. I believe that a deafblind co-navigator program has the ability to change, empower, and enrich the lives of so many in New York State by assisting individuals in their everyday lives with a host of important tasks, said Clear in a statement. I sincerely hope we pass the bill this year, get the program in place, and then fully fund it so it can make a manifest difference as soon as possible. Chris Woodfield, the Associate Executive Director for the Helen Keller National Center, is also in favor of the bills for deafblind New Yorkers. He said that a statewide program would allow people to fully participate and access the communities where they live and work. It is also critical for deafblind people to be able to get access to environmental information, human guides, and communication facilitation, Woodfield said in a statement. This will liberate New York deafblind citizens from isolation that they experience without access to co-navigators and support service providers, said Woodfield. This will enable them to be able to shop, attend appointments, participate in community and cultural events, and participate in other recreational activities that would not be possible without a co-navigator or support service provider. Southman said the bill would also create good jobs and increase economic opportunities for deafblind people as well as co-navigators. That was the article, We Are Here, New York State Crusade for More Inclusion of Deafblind People of Color, written by Ariama Long, published March 16, 2023, in the Amsterdam newspaper's amsterdamnews.com website. The next story on today's program is about a former player for the Kansas City Chiefs football team. It's an obituary from the New York Times in its nytimes.com website. The title is, Otis Taylor, star receiver for the Kansas City Chiefs, dies at 80. It was written by Richard Sandemir, and was published March 14, 2023. The subtitle is, An Acrobatic Player, He Was the Prototype of the Big Receivers Who Succeeded Him. He Caught a Memorable Touchdown in the Chiefs' Upset Win in Super Bowl IV. 
Otis Taylor, a graceful former star receiver for the Kansas City Chiefs who caught the touchdown pass that nailed the team's upset victory over the Minnesota Vikings in Super Bowl IV, died on Thursday, March 9th. He was 80. The team announced his death but did not say where he died or cite a cause. He had been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and dementia. Clark Hunt, the Chiefs' principal owner, described Taylor in a statement as one of the most dynamic receivers of his era, adding that he helped revolutionize the position and that off the field, he was kind and dedicated to his community. Over an 11-year career that began in 1965, when Kansas City was one of the top teams in the American Football League, Taylor was one of quarterback Lynn Dawson's key offensive targets. Dawson died last year at 87. Tall and acrobatic with soft hands, he was the prototype for the big receivers who had come to dominate the position. In 1966, his breakout season, Taylor caught 58 passes for 1,297 yards, an average of 22.4 yards a catch. Five years later, after the AFL's merger with the National Football League was finalized, Taylor led the league with 1,110 receiving yards, and the United Press International named him the NFL's Player of the Year. If a ball is thrown to me, I should catch it, Taylor told Sports Illustrated in 1971. He added, God did give me two hands to catch with, and if the ball comes when I can't use one of them, I'll use the other. I'm not defeated. When the Chiefs faced the Vikings in Super Bowl IV on January 11, 1970, it was their second appearance in the championship game. They had lost to the Green Bay Packers 35-10 in the first Super Bowl. The Vikings were 13.5-point favorites, but the Chiefs handled them easily. Kansas City was leading 16-7 late in the third quarter when Dawson tossed a short pass to Taylor. He shook off a tackle from Ursel McBee, a cornerback, faked Carl Kosalki, a safety, and ran in for a 46-yard touchdown. Their 23-7 victory would be the Chiefs' only Super Bowl win until 2020. They won the championship again last month. Otis Taylor was born on August 11, 1942 in Houston. He was a star receiver at Prairie View A&M University in Texas and was drafted in the fourth round for the American Football League's draft by the Chiefs and in the 15th round of the National Football League draft by the Philadelphia Eagles. In his rookie season, when he started four of Kansas City's 14 games, he caught 26 passes for 446 yards. He emerged as a star the next season, and over his career, he was chosen for the Pro Bowl three times and was a first-team All-Pro twice. He caught a total of 410 passes in his career for 7,306 yards with 57 touchdowns. He ranks third in Chiefs history in receiving yards after Tony Gonzalez and Travis Kelsey. Taylor's playing career ended after the 1975 season and he became a scout for the team. In 1981, he was upset that Marv Levy, Kansas City's head coach at the time, had not interviewed him for an assistant coaching job. I was the most frustrated and saddest man in the world, Taylor told the Kansas City Star. All the jobs that were available and I never got a call from anyone. I'll never put myself on a pedestal and say I should get a coaching job because I'm Otis Taylor. That's not the way the system works, but it would be nice at least to be thought of. He was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease and dementia in 1990. He filed a successful claim under the roughly $1 billion class action settlement that resulted from players who sued the National Football League for covering up the dangers of concussions. 
his family cited multiple repetitive traumatic head impacts, subconcussive and concussive injuries during the games and practices, and he sought medical care for the rest of his life. He was described as being bedridden and dependent on a feeding tube by the Associated Press in a 2016 article. Taylor's survivors included his wife, Regina Taylor, his sister, Odell, and his son, Otis III. While several of his teammates have been inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, Taylor has fallen short most recently last year. That was the obituary of former Kansas City Chiefs player Otis Taylor. It was written by Richard Sandomir. It was published March 14, 2023 in the nytimes.com website. The next story in today's program is from the Warrensburg Star-Journal newspaper. It was published March 16, 2023. The title is, Peterson Represents Warrensburg in Mrs. Missouri America Pageant. It was written by Malaya Venerable. Jeanette Peterson will be representing Warrensburg as she competes for the titles of Mrs. Missouri America or Mrs. Missouri for America Strong in Branson. Peterson is a military veteran and a mother of two. She spent 11 years in the military and stays involved working for the VA. Peterson moved to Warrensburg because her husband is on active duty at Whiteman Air Force Base. Only being here for 15 months, Peterson has seized every opportunity to get involved in the community. I want people to see that it doesn't matter your size. It doesn't matter what you look like. You can still make a difference in whatever community you are in, Peterson said. It doesn't matter how big your community is. I think everybody thinks that you have to make a big impact online. But you can make a big impact in our small town. It doesn't matter where we are. One of Peterson's missions is to tell the world that all people are people, regardless of what they look like and where they come from. She did not grow up in a farming community, so while she is in Warrensburg, she's taking advantage of learning about other lifestyles. She wants to encourage others to have an open mind and to get to know people before judging them. I think that if most people went into it with a version of curiosity and not judgment of whatever other lifestyles are out there, they would learn a lot of things and see that people are just the same, Peterson said. It doesn't matter what we look like or where we come from. People are people. A friend at her church told Peterson that she was participating in the pageant, which is when Peterson decided she would as well. Last year, she was set to compete, but COVID canceled the pageant, so this will be her first year competing. I thought it was a cool way to reconnect with my femininity, Peterson said. After being in the military, in a male-driven career field, I just wanted to reconnect with being a girl. This year, I was all in. I just thought it was a wonderful platform. Now that we are in the America that we are, so many types of people can do it. Each contestant has a platform they compete for. Peterson's platform is unapologetically unstoppable. I want people to be the most unapologetic, fullest version of love for yourself, she said and to be whatever God made you to be 100% of the time and not worry about what other people think. Just be the purest version of you. In her free time, Peterson has a podcast that also explores her platform, Unapologetically Unstoppable. She works to help people find their place in life and achieve the goals they want to reach. Peterson will compete on April 20th in Branson. If crowned, she will advance to represent Missouri later in the year.
That was the article, Peterson Represents Warrensburg in Mrs. Missouri America Pageant. It was written by Malaya Venerable, and it was published in the Warrensburg Star-Journal newspaper on Thursday, March 16, 2023. Next on the African American Hour, I have an obituary about an activist and author out of South Carolina. And after this obituary about Kevin Alexander Gray, I'm going to read an essay that he wrote about James Brown. The title of the obituary is Columbia Activist, Author, Barbecue Restaurant Owner Kevin Gray Dies at 65. This appeared in the state newspaper of Columbia, South Carolina on March 8, 2023, and was written by Chris Trainer. Kevin Alexander Gray, an activist, author, and barbecue restaurant owner who bridged Columbia's political and culinary worlds, has died. Gray died Tuesday, March 7th, according to friends of his family. He was 65. The cause of death wasn't immediately known. He had a long history in progressive politics and activism and was the South Carolina coordinator for the Reverend Jesse Jackson's 1988 presidential campaign. Gray also was the 1992 Southern political director for Iowa Senator Tom Harkin's presidential campaign, according to a bio at the progressive outlet The New Liberator. Gray was a frequent writer, authoring the book Waiting for Lightning to Strike, The Fundamentals of Black Politics, and pinning articles for scores of websites and publications, including the Washington Post Outlook section and The Nation. He also was an editor of the book, Killing Trayvons, an anthology of American violence, released after the 2012 killing of black teen Trayvon Martin in Florida. In recent years, Gray, who grew up in Spartanburg, was the owner of the popular railroad barbecue restaurant on Hampton Street in Columbia, across from the Richland County Administration Building and in the shadow of HBCU's Benedict College and Allen University. The restaurant became known for its ribs, pulled pork and savory side dishes, but also for the plethora of political posters, stickers, buttons, and photographs that adorned its walls. A trip to the dining room of the Railroad Barbecue became a walk through South Carolina's history and the civil rights movement in a sense. Democratic State Representative Leon Howard has long known Gray as they both live in the Barhamville Road area just north of Benedict College. Gray also was a longtime friend of Howard's brother, businessman Puff Howard. I knew him as someone who cared deeply about people, Leon Howard said. He was deep in the civil rights movement. He worked really close with Jesse Jackson and a lot of community leaders who brought a lot of us where we are today. He just loved the community, and he would help people who needed help. And that railroad barbecue? Man, that was his thing. He would often invite me and others in there to see the history of Columbia. Gray was passionate about Columbia and often pushed for advances in the traditionally African-American neighborhoods near the heart of downtown. In a 2022 article in The State, he advocated for better housing and infrastructure in the areas surrounding Two Notch Road near the city center. Columbia Mayor Daniel Reekenman said he had frequent conversations with Gray and would visit Railroad Barbecue. In 2022, Gray appeared on an episode of Rick and Man's podcast, Around Town with At Cola Mayor, where the two talked for more than an hour about issues affecting the city. Rick and Man said Wednesday he was blown away when he got word that Gray had died. 
Kevin was a giant who cared very much about his community, Rickenman told the state. He was engaged. He told you not what you wanted to hear, but what you needed to hear. We had a unique relationship. We had a connection because we both grew up in Spartanburg and we both loved the food business and we both loved Columbia. Kevin was not afraid to have a conversation, good, bad, or indifferent. Preach Jacobs is a Columbia DJ, rapper, and writer who has penned columns for the state, Free Times, and others about issues affecting the black community. He said he was frequently in contact with Gray, and one of their last text exchanges was about the possibility of writing a column about mercurial rapper Ye, formerly known as Kanye West. Jacob said he was crestfallen to learn of Gray's death. As someone who would write about the black experience in the South, I definitely see him as a mentor and someone who would give me perspective, give me advice, and give me criticism when necessary, Jacobs told the state. He really loved his people and he loved Columbia, and that was evident in everything he did. With his talents, he could have gone anywhere. For him to establish a Black-owned business in Columbia, in the community it was established in, was very intentional. Jacobs added that Gray spoke on behalf of marginalized people in the community and amplified Black and Brown voices that probably didn't have someone speaking on their behalf as much as was needed. J.T. McLawhorn, the longtime leader of the Columbia Urban League, said he has known Gray for decades. He remembers when they marched together from Benedict College to the State House to advocate for Dr. Martin Luther King's birthday to be recognized as a holiday, and when they rallied people in support of removing the Confederate flag from atop the State House dome. McLawhorn said Gray was very active in pushing for civil rights. In fact, McLawhorn said Gray was ahead of his time. He called him a soldier for the movement. Long before people were talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion, long before that became a household conversation, Kevin Gray was in the forefront in promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion, and importantly, social justice, McLawhorn said. He will deeply be missed, and I think he has inspired the current generation to activism. We thank God for the gift of Kevin Gray because he made a difference. Sam Davis, a former Columbia City Councilman in District 1 from 1998 to 2021, said he long admired Gray's heart for the community and his keen intellect. His thoughts were always about the community and actually what we think about our environment and that if we don't like it, you have to step forward and put forth some solutions to the problem, Davis said. I thought Kevin did a lot to kind of express his thoughts with young people, actually really challenging them to solidify their respect for people who had paved the way for them, especially young African Americans. A lot of the things we enjoy and they enjoy are the result of people who fought the good fights and paid the price and really endured a lot of struggles. Railroad Barbecue which was listed as one of the essential restaurants in Columbia in a 2022 project from the state, was a passion project for Gray, and he could often be spotted at lunchtime at the restaurant greeting customers, making sure they had what they needed, and talking about what was going on in Columbia. In a November video from the state's Joshua Boucher, Gray outlined why it was important to him to establish railroad barbecue on Hampton Street, not far from the city's two HBCUs. The restaurant is in the heart of the old black business district, Gray said in the video. I used to edit Black News, which was a block away, so I've been working in this district for a long time, 
even going back to when we did anti-apartheid marches and the Dr. King birthday marches. Those all started at Benedict and Allen. So this seemed like the appropriate place to start to find an area that could be multi-ethnic, multi-racial, and multicultural zone. That was the obituary, Columbia activist, author, barbecue restaurant owner Kevin Gray dies at 65, written by Chris Trainer. It appeared in the state newspaper of Columbia, South Carolina, on March 8, 2023. If you've just turned us on, you're listening to the African American Hour. I'm your host, Byron Buckner. Now I'm going to read an essay about R&B legend James Brown that was written by Kevin Gray that was republished in the Black Agenda Report on March 15, 2023. The Soul Will Find a Way. In the start of the 1960s, my father Paul moved my mom Geneva, three older brothers, younger sister and me from Boston to rural Spartanburg County in upstate South Carolina. He'd fled the South in the 1940s enlisting in the Navy. Twenty years later, he returned to an inheritance of 11 shotgun houses and a juke joint at the foot of a hill in a tiny, segregated, one-way-in, one-way-out community called Freyline. Gray's Grocery was on the sign over the front door between the two round red Coca-Cola logos, but everyone called the gathering spot the store. Gray's Grocery was where all the maids, janitors, textile mill workers, field laborers, wannabe slicksters, young and old, Sinners and saints met on weekends to dance, drink, gamble, talk, have an occasional scuffle, fist, gun, or knife fight, and generally let it all hang out. There are a few theories on how the word funk was born, but I think it originated in places like our store. Those who lived in the rural South in the years prior to the mid-1970s can no doubt imagine what Gray's Groceries was like. Most black communities had a similar place. During the day, it was the typical dry goods store. After the workday was done, it was the place to get a beer before heading home, exchange the gossip of the day, get the numbers, complain about white people, and talk about the Lincoln High School basketball team. On weekends, it was the nightclub. My dad would put brown paper bags over the light bulbs that hung from the ceiling to discourage moths and dim the building. The place always had an old smell about it that was a mixture of stale beer, the oily, vinegary scent from the pickled products, coal and the burlap sack it came in, old petrified wood, and the musk of people that worked in the fields, cotton plants, or any other job that was dirty. Field workers had a wet, sweaty scent. The lint heads who worked at the mill would come during the week covered in cotton dust from head to toe, accompanied by a dry, dusty aroma. In the summer, the building was hot even with both doors open and the two small fans running on high. On Wednesdays, the Collins Music Man would come by to divide up the money from the jukebox and bring new records. There was always a lot of brown on the piccolo machine. A perk for our family was the extra copy of Lickin' Stick or Night Train that the piccolo man would leave us. When a 45 record came off the machine, we got it. He always had to bring the extra disc for Brown's hits because Brown's songs, even the ones released in the late 1950s and early 1960s, were never stale or out of style. What could the man take off? Think, Caledonia, Out of Sight, was hot well into the late 1960s. And there are no better slow drag songs, hip-hoppers call it the bump and grind, than Try Me or I Lost Someone. 
Brown was a constant presence in our store. He was the low country homeboy who made it big. The state of Georgia and the city of Augusta claim him as their hometown hero, and he too claimed the state and city. Yet he never moved more than 40 miles from his family's roots in Barnwell County, South Carolina, along the Savannah River, establishing a home on Beach Island in Aiken County, South Carolina, adjacent to Strom Thurmond's Edgefield County home. The earliest record account of Brown's kin can be found in the 1860 census of the James C. Brown Plantation. Brown's parents and grandparents are included in the 1930 census records of Barnwell. He was born in South Carolina, jailed there, his last legally questionable marriage was licensed here, and his final resting place is here. Yet, throughout his life, he publicly rejected South Carolina, but maintained a private connection to the place that was obviously his home. The conflicted relationship with South Carolina is the story of Brown's music and life. It's hard to bury James Brown. At any moment in a day, you'll hear his voice, his name, a beat or a song. A brown phrase crystallizes a situation like when it's time to leave a room. It's too funky in here. Or when it's time to go to work or party. You got to get on the good foot. Or when hearing someone being deceitful or stupid, talking loud and saying nothing. The substance that fed Brown's music won't decompose. For the sake of discussion, let's call it soul power. Soul power is a connection to the people and their experiences, good, bad, and ugly. It means hearing what you feel and feeling what you hear. It's in the call and response like a preacher to the congregation. It can be in one person singing their story alone, like when Otis Redding sings, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay. It's putting the blue note in a plea, a wail, a moan, a holler, or a shout. It's about the process of life with all its messiness. Now, this is not about who has or doesn't have soul. It's about where Brown got his supply. I mean, there is something cosmically black about South Carolina. My belief arises from the fact that the vast majority of African slaves brought to the United States for life on the plantation disembarked on Sullivan's Island, the Black Ellis Island, just off the coast of Charleston. Brown picked up from the vibes of the Africans brought off the slave ships and taken into the fields. He inherited what they sang about and how they sang it. Plantation slaves subversively sang, Jackass reared, jackass pitch, throw the massa in the ditch. While Brown sang, You can't tell me how to be the boy when you know I'm grown. The African beat and rhythm landed on Sullivan's Island. It rolled down the coast to Edesto Island and traveled up the Savannah River to Brown's neck of the woods. It is not surprising that two of the most profound influences on modern popular black music, James Brown and Motown, can so clearly place their historical pedigrees from the same region. Adesto Island, one of the barrier islands in the Low Country swamp area, is where escaped African slaves sought refuge from their would-be masters. Adesto is where bass player and Motown funk brother James Jamerson found the blue note. Jamerson carried the bottom beat in just about every Diana Ross, Marvin Gaye, Smokey Robinson, or Motown tune. In the movie Standing in the Shadow of Motown, Jamerson is quoted as telling a friend he made his first musical instrument by stretching a rubber band on a stick and sticking it into an anthill so he could make the ants dance. It is easy to imagine Brown, the young songwriter reminiscing on his childhood, recalling a day he sat on an anthill and wrote, I got ants in my pants and I need to dance. 
Some of us wrote off Brown's dissing South Carolina as his not wanting the world to think the hardest working man in show business was a country bumpkin. He could justifiably claim Georgia since his formative years were spent in urban Augusta, which, despite the obstacles he would face as a teen, was a slightly better environment than backwater Barnwell. Even 130 years after emancipation, life in rural Barnwell was still pretty much like it was on the plantation. Brown's mother Susie ran away from it in 1936, leaving three-year-old James with his father, James Joseph Brown Sr. Within the first six years of Brown's life, his dad left the fields to work in the tar plant. From the turn of the century through the 1960s, just about every county had a tar plant. It provided tar for roads, railroad ties, house siding, and a variety of other uses. The work was hot, black, hard, nasty, sticky, smelly, dirty, and dangerous. Small, impoverished, black enclaves of little tar paper shotgun houses sprung up around these plants. Chain gang camps were located close by so as to provide county road crews. Families of inmates migrated to these communities. These small black communities also served big white-owned farms, providing the bulk of work in much of the same ways as when plantation owner James C. Brown was alive. Every winter, a couple of these tar paper houses burned to the ground in a flash, often taking their occupants with them. The tar paper would raise the temperature in an already out-of-control blaze, which took on a blue flame and gave off an oily smell. This is what it was like in Freyline. Jack Dobson's Big Farm, one of the three large farms in our area, employed many of the men in Freyline. A tar and creso wood plant was within smelling distance. Relatives would come through with a county prison road crew and were often allowed to visit with Ken while in the neighborhood. James Brown came from just such a community. With his mother gone and his father working, young James, as he recalled, was pretty much left alone to roam the backwoods of Barnwell to fend for himself. His childhood might have been as idyllic as playing in the fields or running barefoot behind the older kids, or no telling what a young kid alone might have seen or experienced in the woods. Now, I don't know exactly why Susie ran, and I don't know a lot about James Brown Sr. James legally dropped the junior from his name. Yet before Brown's birth, through at least the 1960s and 70s, the South was an extremely harsh place for black women. Spousal violence was endemic. Black women didn't have a rung on the social ladder. They were often on the brutal receiving end of black males' anger at his condition and treatment by white society. A black woman had very little protection from abuse unless she had a special relationship with a white patriarch. Or she could resort to the dreaded 10-cent pop pistol which was a mixture of hot grits and lye. Black children, too, were often victims of abuse in a hard life at an early age. Brown's music came from a raucous and oftentimes violent environment with all the emotions and contradictions carved into his psyche for better or worse. Maybe Brown was saying something about Susie's life when he sang, When we did wrong, Papa beat the hell out of us and Papa don't take no mess. It surely says a lot about the world I witnessed growing up in rural South Carolina at a time when common law marriages were the norm. Back then, a man could kill a spouse or mate and was protected by laws recognizing crimes in the heat of passion. Even a black man who killed his wife or girlfriend, if he was fortunate enough to own property or have money, sometimes could avoid jail time or a long sentence for murder. 
I had one uncle who only did four years on the chain gang for beating his first spouse to death with a two-by-four stud. Another uncle served 12 years on the chain gang for killing the wrong man over a woman. My father on occasion would beat my mother. My siblings and I would grab his legs in her defense. Two boys to a leg. It was often violent in our home, but he only ran us out of the house at gunpoint once or twice. Maybe Susie Brown was escaping such a life. Still, there were some hard and fast rules folks lived by. The rules dealing with whites boiled down to staying out of their business beyond work. The worst place a black person could be was in the middle of white folks' business or to have them in the middle of yours. But rule number one within our own community was stay out of married or grown folks' business or fights between a man and a woman. My dad warned us early, when you jump in the middle of a quarreling couple, they'll end up turning on you. This rule came from the widely held belief that you had to apply violence to get another person to do what you wanted them to do. That physical and psychological violence, fundamental to both slavery and Puritanism, was acceptable and even sometimes encouraged in society. The second rule, don't interfere with a parent whipping their child, often gave relatives, friends, neighbors, and school officials the go-ahead to physically correct their child. The words, I'm going to beat some sense into you, came right before a whack or slap across the face, a lick upside the head, a butt licking, hand or wooden paddle, a whipping or beating. Tree switches, the offense determined the number, were used for whipping, and belts or barber straps for beatings. Violence is still condoned today. The threat of violence is often used as a punchline in jokes. In a Bill Cosby comic bit, Cosby chides his son for some transgression, saying, I brought you into this world and I can take you out. The truth of the matter is that the South where Brown and many others grew up in was a very violent place. Brown continued to live with his father and a host of living girlfriends until he was six years old when his father moved to Augusta. There he left the boy to live with his Aunt Honey on Twig Street. Aunt Honey, like Richard Pryor's grandmother, ran a whorehouse. Living with his aunt no doubt provided Brown with an abundant array of grunts, groans, squeals, and sexual repartee for his songs. In Augusta, he spent more time on his own, hanging out on the streets and hustling to get by. Brown managed to stay in school until he dropped out in seventh grade. He earned money by picking cotton, racking pool balls, shining shoes, sweeping out stores, washing cars and dishes, singing in talent contests, and buck dancing for change to entertain troops from Camp Gordon. In 1948, at around 16, Brown was sentenced to 8 to 18 years for burglary and armed robbery. He was sent to a juvenile detention center in Tacoa, located in northeast Georgia, just over the state line from South Carolina. While in prison, Brown, who played the harmonica, formed a gospel quartet which performed for the local prison crowd and other prisons around the area. During one of these performances, future bandmate Bobby Bird watched the show from outside the prison gates. Brown later became friends with Bird when the prison baseball team played Bird's team. Brown played pitcher and Bird played shortstop. Bird promised to help Brown get out of prison by offering to provide him with a place to live. Bird's family then helped Brown gain an early release after serving about three years of his sentence under the condition that he would not return to Augusta or Richmond County, Georgia. By all accounts, Brown failed to live up to the Leave Georgia terms of his release. After his release, he did brief stints as a semi-professional boxer and a pitcher in semi-professional baseball. After a career-ending leg injury, Brown turned his full attention to music. 
1955, Brown and Bird's sister Sarah performed in a group called the Gospel Starlighters. Eventually, Brown joined Bobby Bird's vocal group, the Avons, and Bird switched the group's sound from gospel to rhythm and blues. Brown's name and story first spread by word of mouth from community to community. The group changed their name to The Flames and began touring the Southern Chitlin Circuit, eventually signing a deal with the Cincinnati, Ohio-based label Federal Records, a sister label of King Records. The Flames' first recording in 1956 was the single Please, 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 which became a number five R&B hit selling over a million copies. Five years later in 1961, Please, Please, Please was still on my father's jukebox and folks were still slow dragging to it. Hearing someone repeat Brown's plea, Good God Almighty was almost as common as Good Morning. The Flames went on to become James Brown and the Famous Flames. Their music spread from jukebox to jukebox and on the airwaves. Brown's black and white photo on bold-lettered black, orange, and white live show announcement posters popped up on telephone poles or were tacked to the size of black country stores, including ours, a couple of weeks before a local gig. Through the posters, we followed and mimicked Brown's hairstyles from process to afro to process. Our store was always jumping in the early 1960s, especially since most Southern blacks got their first taste of music on the neighborhood jukebox. If the weather was clear, you could hear black artists late night on any AM transistor radio beamed in from Randy Radio out of Tennessee. We either bought our records locally from Collins, the white-owned amusement company, or downtown Spartanburg at Oliver's black-owned drugstore. If you had patience and a mailbox, you could mail order from Randy or Ernie Records out of Tennessee. If you were old enough or knew somebody, you could get in to see Brown at the Municipal Auditorium or his live club show. Wherever he performed, his records were on sale. Seeing a live show meant going to the XL100 Club in downtown Spartanburg or driving the 35 miles over to the Ghana in Greenville. The Ghana's house band, Moses Dillard and the Textown Display, featuring a young crooner named Peebo Bryson, now a Disney voice artist, would often open the show. When grown folks wanted to make a weekend out of it, they drove up to the Birdcage in Charlotte or the El Matador down in Columbia or over to Augusta to Brown's The Third World, which he opened in 1962 with co-owner Charlie Reed Sr., whose funeral home ended up doing Brown's last rites. In Atlanta, they could see him at La Carousel, which was located at Pascal's, a restaurant frequented by Martin Luther King Jr. and his cohort, or the Royal Peacock about four blocks from King's Church, Ebenezer Baptist, on Auburn Avenue. Back then, as now, you heard James Brown every day. Family scheduled Sunday evening television time around seeing him on The Ed Sullivan Show. Kids would suffer through Frankie Avalon and Annette Funicello's 1965 movie Ski Party just to see him and the famous Flames dancing and singing I Feel Good by the fireplace in ski sweaters. We joked that James and the Flames were the only Negroes on the slopes, or they were dancing to stay warm. Still, a whole lot of black boys in the South couldn't wait for winter so they could wear their thick ski sweaters and pistol-leg, shiny, creased shark skin pants. Brown's music was the soundtrack to the Black South throughout the 1960s and much of the 1970s. Kids danced to the Rhythm of James Brown Band at high school basketball games and the dances afterward. 
Big thigh drum majorettes bounce down Main Street in the local Christmas parade to the beat of Papa's Got a Brand New Bag. Sometimes, like a gypsy, be it on the Southern Chitlin Circuit or playing Las Vegas, New York, or Europe, Brown entered the theater through the back door, got his money up front and in cash, put on a show, sold some records, left out the back door, and split town on the night train. At other times, he mingled with the people and occasionally took some along with him. Brown worked with hundreds of local musicians and workers during his years on stage. Every kid who played a horn dreamed of being on stage with the James Brown Band. Maceo, blow your horn, and play it, Fred, were as much a part of the slang of the day as Brown's hit me or good God. Boys either wanted to play the trombone like Fred Wesley or the sax like Maceo Parker. Wesley and Parker probably influenced more kids to join their local high school bands than anyone else during the era. The 1960s are when Brown is credited with creating the music genre now called funk. Papa's Got a Brand New Bag, which came out in 1965, was followed by Money Won't Change You and Cold Sweat. Yet songs like Don't Be a Dropout and Money Won't Change You reveal Brown's social consciousness. He followed up the anti-dropout song by touring schools sponsored by then-Vice President Hubert Humphrey, donating scholarship money and performing a benefit concert in Mississippi in 1966 for the wounded activist James Meredith. Brown was the go-to guy after Martin Luther King Jr. was killed. Brown went on stage in front of thousands of black kids at the Boston Gardens on April 5, 1968, the night after King delivered his mountaintop speech to hundreds at Mason Temple in Memphis. As word spread across the country of King's murder, instead of canceling his concert, Brown arranged to televise it with the belief that people would rather watch him perform than riot. From the stage, he counseled his fans not to destroy their own community in anger and to respect King's memory. King preached against the Vietnam War in life, and Brown stepped into the breach after his death. In June 1968, two months after Memphis, Brown took an integrated band featuring Marva Whitney, Tim Drummond, Clyde Stubblefield, Jimmy Nolan, Maceo Parker, and Wayman Reed to Vietnam to help ease the still raw racial tension among the troops over King's death. He originally offered to go at his own expense to head off the Lyndon B. Johnson-led government from using cost as an excuse for denying his trip. Even though the government ultimately picked up travel expenses, Brown lost hundreds of thousands of dollars in canceled stateside shows to make room for a predictably dangerous trip. Brown and his crew performed deep in country where Bob Hope dared not to go. When Brown arrived in Saigon, my elementary school bus driver Eugene Blue Boyce, drafted right after high school, was alive to greet Brown and his band. Yet Blue, like so many young men, never made it out of Southeast Asia as he was killed in September later that year. Brown's prominence in the aftermath of King's death did not go unnoticed, as his face appeared on the cover of Look magazine in 1968 with the caption, Is this the most important black man in America? For the most part, public school desegregation in the late 1960s meant the closing of black facilities and the layoff of scores of black teachers. It meant black kids entering a system and culture that was universally assumed to be better than what they were coming from. Blacks integrated a white situation, not vice versa. Yet, as the official policy of segregation ended, the black children that walked through the schoolhouse doors weren't serenely humming, We Shall Overcome. I'm Black and I'm Proud was their anthem. It was everywhere. It was at our store. It was in the streets. It was on the jukebox and the radio. 
It was in the air as my sister Valerie and I entered all-white Fair Forest Elementary School in 1969. Saying it was often accompanied by a clenched pump fist, down low, subtle, yet subversive, or up high, defiant and proud. For some, I'm Black and I'm Proud was an announcement of newfound Black pride. It straightened out those who confused the demand for equal rights as whites with a desire to be white. Not that I ever heard any Black wishing out loud to be white. For those like me, it was simply calling ourselves what we were already calling ourselves. We were saying to white people that there was nothing wrong with being black. Brown knew the difference between I'm black and I'm proud and I'm black but I'm proud. Neither Negro nor colored were terms ever in contention to be their response to Brown's call. The African slaves were called black. Even as Negro became colored, became Negro again, and white Southerners mangled nigger and Negro to come up with the acidic nigra, Black was and remains the only term accepted with little argument on any side. Without a doubt, I'm Black and I'm Proud settled the self-identification debate for many. Even in the era of the African-American tag, there's no shaking Black because Brown made it cool to be Black. The 1970s were my pubescent teenage years. Things were changing for me and the folks around me. Tension around full-scale school desegregation and busing occupied our minds. The protest against the Vietnam War was having an effect. You could be a part of either the peace and love, the Black Panther movements, or both. The heroin epidemic hit the Black community. My eldest brother, who had volunteered for the Army in the early 1970s at the tail end of the Vietnam War, narrowly escaped to be sent to Southeast Asia. What he didn't escape was the heroin addiction he picked up while stationed in Germany. Brown's 1972 song, King Heroin, spoke to my brothers and many others' predicament. Brown made bad good and then declared himself super bad. He was soul brother number one, even as black peace and love groups like Frankie Beverly and Mays, Cool and the Gang, Earth, Wind and Fire came on the scene with the more laid-back sound. Sly and the Family Stone, the Ohio Players, and George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic built on the funk foundation of Brown's Give It Up or Turn It Loose, can't stand it, and a host of hits. As Curtis Mayfield and Marvin Gaye smoothly laid out the politics of war and race in their music, Brown shouted, get on the good foot, and Papa don't take no mess. When Aretha was crowned the Queen of Soul, Elvis the King of Rock and Roll, and Frank Sinatra was named the Chairman of the Board, Brown proclaimed himself as both the King and Godfather of Soul. We accepted it without a fuss. Brown didn't let anyone, including the black nationalists, tell him who to be. He was often labeled a black capitalist, but it was deeper than that. Brown believed that he and other blacks had a stake in America through the dues that his parents and grandparents paid through years of toil. That's what songs like Say It Loud, Open Up the Door, Payback, and Funky President spoke to. King spoke of a promissory note and a bounce check. Brown saying, I don't want nobody to give me nothing open up the door and I'll get it myself. And you can't tell me how to run my life down and you can't tell me how to keep my business sound. You can't tell me how to use my voice. All lines and talking loud and saying nothing. In that song, Brown was talking to black nationalists, white racists, politicians, and the person next door. But the message was the same. James Brown called his own shots and if you can't tend to your own business, don't try to tend to his. 
When he and Sammy Davis Jr. endorsed and had their pictures taken with Richard Nixon in the late 1960s, we forgave them both. At least I did. My mother had a copy of Davis's biography, Yes I Can, that I read as a boy. The title said it all. A few blacks heckled Brown at a couple of concerts with the chant, James Brown, Nixon's Clown, but it wasn't widespread, it didn't last long, and it didn't stick. Brown's flirtations with Nixon may have had something to do with how the Democrats treated Fannie Lou Hamer and the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party back in 1964 at the Democratic National Convention in New Jersey and the years after when she ran for office. But most believe that it had more to do with him and other blacks getting the opportunity to buy up AM radio stations in the late 1960s. With greater access to the airwaves, Brown's music, along with Gay, Mayfield, and the Staple Singers played on black-owned stations, helped set the mood of the 1970s. And the stations did more than play music. They were lifelines. They informed their listeners on issues, mobilized them around election time, and connected them to black folks' doings outside their communities. The 80s were tough on Brown. Like many, I took his presence for granted, although... When he appeared in the Blues Brothers film in the 1980s, I went to the theater to see him as the Reverend Cleotus Brown, shouting, sliding, and dancing behind a pulpit with an inspired congregation to match his energy and Chaka Khan leading the choir. And for me, the only part of the 1985 Rocky IV worth seeing is Brown singing Living in America. Yet beyond a couple of bright spots in the 1980s, many of us moved away from Brown's music. In 1988, Brown was convicted and sentenced to six years in a South Carolina prison for carrying an unlicensed pistol, assaulting a police officer along with various drug-related and driving offenses. From what I have been able to gather, no drugs were found on Brown's person, only what was alleged to be in his blood system at the time of his arrest. So his conviction amounted to a blue light violation, refusing to pull over for the cops. A 19-year-old white man, in court on the same day as Brown, charged with a second offense of the same violation, received a suspended sentence. Brown died on Christmas Day, December 25, 2006, at the age of 73. The night before the Augusta funeral, Michael Jackson made a late-night visit to C.A. Reed's funeral home. The King of Pops spent a little more than an hour alone with Brown after his body had been prepared for the next day's trip downtown. Upon seeing Brown in repose, Jackson softly quipped, he didn't wear his hair like that. He then, according to a couple of workers, proceeded to fix Brown's hair, taking his fingers, poofing out his bangs so that Brown's new hairdo was a bit freer, and parting his hair the way he remembered. The workers fretted as Michael mussed up the Godfather's newly pressed process, one man saying to the other, we cannot let James go out with his hair looking like that. After James left, the beautician was called back in. Later that night, Jackson returned to the funeral home to spend a little more time alone with Brown. When you're listening to Brown and all that funk, it's an assertion of dominance, mastery, cool, and an absolute fierce expression of need, satisfied, and arising again over and over as long as we're alive. Freedom is connecting with the life force soul and the struggle to keep it glowing, keeping the coals or body heat hot, when everything in the world seems determined to extinguish the embers. Freedom is let loose with a big howl, a scream, and yo, as Brown would express it. And however it comes out, it always translates, no, damn it, I will not be extinguished. Thank goodness there's a statue of Brown in his adopted hometown of Augusta, Georgia. 
His home in South Carolina ought to erect a statue, monument, or memorial to Brown. But if it never happens, Brown will still always be around. His bottom beats will always drive hip-hop and R&B. Even though his body rests in South Carolina, his presence is everywhere there's music. His presence is in the middle of the field at halftime at a high school or college football game or in the stands with the basketball team's pep band. It's in George Clinton's beats and Prince's feet. You can't escape Brown, nor do you want to. You know you want soul power. You gotta have some. Soul power. That's what you need. Soul power. Give it to me. Soul power. That was the essay, The Soul Will Find a Way, by Kevin Alexander Gray. It was published March 15, 2023, at the BlackAgendaReport.com website. That's all I have for today. My name is Byron Buckner, and thank you for listening to the African American Hour. 